Dear listeners, I would like to welcome you to the latest episode of our podcast because it can no longer be denied when it comes to sustainability. We are on the verge of a revolution. Recent natural disasters and severe weather events have increased the urgency to act. The tourism industry in particular has an enormous impact on global warming, and so it's only understandable that we in this industry need to pay special attention to it. Last time the world faced a similar upheaval was with the digital revolution, some 20 or 30 years ago. Today, I would like to talk with my esteemed guests, Willy Legrand and Lea Jordan, about the important concepts of digitalization and sustainability. Willy Legrand is professor at the IU International University of Applied Sciences and lead author of the textbook Sustainability in the Hospitality Industry, Principles of Sustainable Operations. Leo Jordan is the co-founder at Tech Travel, the neutral knowledge platform for the hotel and travel industry with technology at its core. Together, we will address the question, is sustainability the new digital? All right, so our starting question is, is there a sustainability revolution or sustainability evolution happening in hospitality, just like there is a digital revolution. So, Leah, I turn to you first. Can you say a few words about digital revolution? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, digital revolution, I'd say it's rather an evolution, although the term is defined and it started as early as 1947, probably with the invention of the transistor. And digital revolution overall just refers to the development of technology from mechanical and analog to digital, right? But if you look at, I mean, we can all confirm that by ourselves, there was a lot of things happening in the past years and decades. Um, it's an ongoing process. It's a transformation. So I prefer digital evolution instead of revolution. And it's not news to us now that that changed a lot, how we work, how we live, how we communicate with each other and how we do business overall, right? And as it is still ongoing, um, something very interesting for our conversation today, I guess, is um, also something a recent McKinsey study suggests is that the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, just accelerated the acceleration of digital solutions and technology by three years, which doesn't sound too much. But just imagine fast forwarding for three years. That's quite some time. And if we zoom in into our like industry even more, for example, the hospitality industry, um, I mean, all of us, we've probably observed some of these examples. Um, it's the rise of contactless technologies, for example, digital check-ins, the QR codes in restaurants and the food and beverage space, um, the options to pay digitally, the remote work that we all can share ourselves. I mean, the adoption of just simple solutions as a video conferencing tool, etc. And also just expectations from the customers um, in that sense, right? Because companies, big tech companies as Amazon or Google just driving also an expectation there. So if I shop on Amazon, everything is instantly available, is personalized, I can pay automatically without having to log in again or to show um, authentication, my credit card or similar. So there's several factors driving this. And I mean, the three major ones are, as I said, the customer demands, the guest experience, the ease of use, they just expect it by now, it's not an option anymore. Businesses have to respond to just remain competitive within our industry. And then a the second factor that's also interesting is um, the lack of workforce, force, the staffing challenges we see in our industry. So there are smaller teams for the same amount of work or even more work or more 
um, important work and the need for increased operational efficiencies. That's certainly something driving the digital um, solutions in our industry. And then, I mean, the pandemic itself with regulatory um, impacts from governments, et cetera, um, externally imposed factors such as just the need to use a COVID-19 app, for example. But to, to have the bridge to our topic today, which I find super interesting to see where the learnings are or where the similarities are. The challenge I see with digitization is, I mean, there's a few small companies or small small examples or also bigger companies, but singular ones that do a great job at it. They can say about themselves, yes, we, we've reached a state where we are fully digitized. But then if you look at the long tail of the market and there's a huge um, mid-sized business segment, they're not there yet, right? And they're quite overwhelmed. And it's it's a change process that hurts because we have to change what we're doing, what we're used to in terms of processes, company cultures. I mean, also leadership products that we're offering, how we consume them, how we offer them. And they're usually the same principles apply, right? It's a change process. It's painful. You have to set a strategy. You have to set targets, objectives. You need to onboard all of your stakeholders, internal one and external ones. And it's a process where you continuously have to measure and iterate and try again. So that is what we're seeing if you look at the digital side of our industry. And if I now turn to you, really, and going really into our topic of today, what are you seeing there? Do you see something similar happening in regards to a sustainability revolution or would you also say is a sustainability evolution? Uh, yeah, so thanks very much. That's a, also a very good question. As you know, we're in the middle of the United Nations 26th Conference of the Parties, the COP26 in Glasgow, which means that on the specific topic of climate and emissions, we have really decades of data and we have negotiation and, and a bunch of incremental improvement in some sectors of society. So perhaps it's just worth it to untangle the concept of revolution versus evolution in some ways, because in business, you know, much, much of this has to do with dealing with change or as we say, change management. And evolution in that business context is often to do with incremental changes, so gradual, continuous improvements. Uh, whereas revolution has to do with transformational change, so much more groundbreaking, sort of unprecedented change. So in the case of sustainability, really a lot of, a lot of it has to do with innovations to deal with environmental and social and economic challenges. You know, how do we deal with biodiversity collapse? How do we bend the emission curve? How do we ensure climate justice in regards to the historical responsibility for climate change? And really what we've seen over the past decade has been largely incremental small step innovations to deal with those challenges and those, whether they be technological, organizational or social innovations. But many would argue, including perhaps the younger generations in the streets now, that when we consider the series of latest reports on the state of our climate and biodiversity, on social cohesion, that we actually need more radical rather than incremental. So radical innovation improvements, you know, from resource efficiency all the way to pollution reduction. So, you know, since 2015, at the time of the Paris Agreement, we haven't seen the depth of that transformation needed yet. Although at the same time, we have made many commitments to net zero future in many countries within legal framework. Uh, and businesses have done the same. They've made commitment to, we have over 3,000 signatories of the UN race to zero, for example. Uh, so to some observers that are new to the climate topic, that additional attention given to sustainability matters may appear to be in fact a revolution. But our handling of sustainability has been 
incremental, so more evolutionary and not revolutionary. So really, it, it is the hope that that COP26 actually brings about actions and not words. Simply put, you know, taking what we've agreed upon, turn it into concrete actions. And perhaps that's where the revolution is, simply walking the talk. Yeah, well, that's that's a good point because commitment alone won't get us further, right? Um, but let's stick with the, the resources a bit. So we often hear that sustainability is linked to resource management and the pandemic has brought forward the term self-reliance. What would you say? What's the connection between self-reliance and sustainability here? Mm, yeah, that, that's correct. So sustainability is often linked to the way we extract and transform, use and dispose of resources. And, you know, traditionally, this has been a one-way street, sort of a linear approach. It's take, make and waste. And this is probably best exemplified by everyday items, such as single-use coffee cups that we use in hospitality and restaurant sector, for example, you know, with a fair amount of resources and energy required for the extraction, production, transportation of those cups for really just a few minutes of usage by the consumers before the cup then enters again a long energy-intensive disposal chain. So there's been advances, though. There's been advances in, in closing that loop by introducing repair and recycle, reuse, return, therefore trying to, to bypass the waste stage. Um, we talk here more about a circular economy. And in many ways, we see or I see linkages here to the concept of self-reliance. So the concept of self-reliance was coined by an American philosopher, M Emerson, in the mid-19th century. And it's really based on an individual's trust in one's thoughts or one's skills and creativity, for example. So if you take self-reliance to the level of community, well, self-reliance would emphasize independence and strengths and resilience. So for example, if we take, if we go back to waste management, well, the managing of waste, the management, sorry, of waste would have to be undertaken in a very thoughtful manner with a clear responsibility for any any negative consequences. So a self-reliant community would have only gains in making sure that they have a circular economy put in place because self-reliance in this case also includes self-sufficiency. And that's where we have clear gains in closing the loop on waste. So now let's take this to the business level and we can link it to technology in fact, because self-reliance and circular approaches that translate into reduced dependence on fossil fuel and an extensive deployment of renewable energy, including a fair share of decentralized production capacity of energy. So at the same time, however, we have to say we live in a connected world and the greater challenges require usually a common concerted approach. But, you know, self-reliance is not necessarily in contradiction here because what's important is that, and I go back to the technologies we were talking about, you know, pretend I have a hotel, I'm located in a remote location. I have minimal access to grid for electricity or water. So the technology required for self-reliance, such as photovoltaic panels for electricity productions are imported. So it is therefore very important that the full responsibility for the management, understanding and future deployment of that technology are in the hands of the users at that remote location. So to understand self-reliance, I guess it's worth to turn to some traditional communities, in fact, because they have developed a strong sense of place and communities with pride, but also control over their resources and independence. Now, let's just turn this and just to finish it to the corona pandemic, because that has brought really the concept of self-reliance forward. 
either because it's laid bare the fact that we depend heavily on international supply chain for our own daily consumables. I mean, we can just think of anything from food to toilet paper here. But it's also triggered many to develop urban gardens, for example, grow and share the food and making sure that none of it is wasted and, you know, implementing actually greater sustainability in localized food system. And at the same time, that's, that's been done also by restaurant and the hotel sector. So it's brought many of those communities to, in fact, build greater resiliency by developing greater self-reliance. And that's really needed to adapt to those current crises. Right. And um, if we if we look at digitization again, um, there's a few challenges holding the, transform the successful transformation back, right? If you look at the, the majority of the industry companies out there and a few challenges would include, for example, just the challenge to adopt the right mindset is the lack of urgency for it. There's a lack of knowledge overall, maybe in education in that segment and a lack of people owning the process, but also a lack of budget. And currently, caused by the pandemic, of course, a lack of cash flow, obviously, right? So it's a very hard hit industry. Um, how would you say is the situation with regards to sustainability? What are the main challenges within hospitality when it comes to implementing and executing a sustainability strategy? Yeah, that's interesting because, in fact, there are lots of parallels to the barriers you've just mentioned now uh, in terms of technology, for example. Um, there was one of the very first study I conducted about two decades ago. I looked at that. I looked at the barriers and motivators in implementing sustainability measures in European hotel sector. And I duplicated that study again 10 years later. And if I take stock now of the studies on the topic of, you know, deploying sustainability in hospitality, What are the barriers, etc.? We're often back to a chicken and egg situation. And why do I say that? Is because the general perception is that you know you'll get financial benefit as one of the greatest advantage from investing in sustainability. So, for example, you know the energy and cost savings that you would get from changing your lighting to LEDs. But at the same time, the costs involved in sustainability. In my example, retrofitting the entire hotel to LEDs, as well as the doubt on the return on the investment for those initiatives are perceived as the strongest barrier, right? So it, that's with the chicken and egg situations. But also what you've mentioned, which is also correct in sustainability, there are barriers that are structural. What I mean by this is you know, one of the greatest hindrance in our industry to enact sustainability is the complexity surrounding our ownership, our brands, the operators, and that's particular of the hotel industry, in fact. You know, if you take an independent uh, hotel, you know, we often have ownership and management under one roof. However, things become slightly more complicated in the world of brands and chains. We have hotel owners, operators, franchises, developers, investors, and they're all distinct parties potentially. And of course, all are playing a role when we look at big challenges, whether we talk about decarbonization or net zero goal. But who takes responsibility is really another matter. And so our survey also found other factors that work as barriers, such as what you've just mentioned, actually, the complexity of implementation, the lack of knowledge, lack of staff, the lack of time. Um, and perhaps beyond this, I think there's also the, the whole rhetoric around sustainability, the way we communicate it, the, the mindset around it. I think we've gotten used to understanding sustainability as a cost-added feature rather than a value-added feature. And that's really hindering the fast uptake. You know, this, this is perhaps where regulations may provide a level playing field, in fact, but uh, and, and also greater transparency to travelers would be useful. Um, I mean, the ultimate goal really is to create sustainability as a default 
and not sustainability as an option scenario in this industry. And so, you know, this is really what, what the way I'm seeing it. But I'm curious actually about what the learnings we could get on the sustainability front, we could get from that digital evolution uh, that would also be valid for the sustainability evolution. Yeah, right. I mean, there were so many points you mentioned that I could like go back to now, but to highlight two of them, maybe to like limit it down. Um, first of all, like highlighting the cost of inactivity here, like not talk about an investment only, but also talk about the opportunity cost of not doing it, right? And and bring that forward. And, and that's the same in digital solutions as well, right? So you could just stick with what you have and um, stay with your legacy systems and not change anything in your tech infrastructure. But the day will come where it's just not sufficient anymore to operate in that status. So what's going to happen if you do not invest today? What's going to happen if you don't educate your teams? What's going to happen if you don't act upon what's needed today? That's one area, I think. And that's a learning, I think, for the sustainability revolution or evolution too, is just highlighting what happens if we don't act upon it. And I mean, there's a, there's a clear lack of urgency there. So that's just a part of communication, I guess, and also communication on any layer within a business operation. So frontline up to sea level, everyone has to be involved in that conversation. But then another one, um, another area I find um, very interesting, and I think there could be a lot of learnings drawn from is just the power of collaboration. So it doesn't help if we won't have one um, like a player in that game. It doesn't help if we have this one hospitality brand doing it excellently and all the others just watching them and talking about it, but not following up with it. So And they can do it by themselves, right? If you just look at just impacts on the supply chain and just who is all involved in, in that process, it's the same in the digital field too. You can't do it by yourself. You need your suppliers, your vendors, you need your customers, you need your teams to be part of it and join in in that change process. And for example, in the technology space, we have a huge issue with the open technologies. We, there's a lot of closed systems and it's not as easy as you might think to just offer an Amazon experience. There's much more to it just than just saying, give me your email address and then we give you that personalized experience. No, there's, there's so many factors and there's even legal entities involved. So it, it gets very complex. And I think um, starting at a certain point, defining objectives and say who's responsible for what and also giving people accountability and like following up with them on their accountability on the matter. I think that's something that in sustainability is as similar important, right? Everyone has a stake in that matter and has to, to live up to that. All right. So let's just try to get a few best practice examples within the industry in terms of sustainability and perhaps how explain how can technology support sustainable hospitality and travel would you would you be able to provide us with some some examples you've come across yeah absolutely i mean there's there's probably a huge list and I, i can only share a few that come to mind now but um if we look at how digital solutions can actually foster um the practice of sustainability within uh, hospitality industry um i mean there's a few to mention for example technologies that just drive um, energy, water efficiency, but also waste reduction, right? And energy, water and waste is the three areas I think every hotelier should really focus on and see what their impact is and what they can actually do in that area. Um, but also if you look at the buildings, I mean, that's a, that's a huge issue too, right? Um, it's a real estate heavy industry. And as we all know, there's, um, yeah, 
real estate is having an issue with sustainability too. So there's a lot you can, there's a lot of potential to actually improve and optimize. So there's a lot of great technology solutions out there regards energy, energy consumption control, but also insulation, light sensors, solar PV solutions, but also occupancy sensors. I mean, there's a lot of just energy wasted by not used spaces. And there's so much space in a hotel property usually, especially if you look at resorts or at event locations. I think there's a huge potential there. Um, I mean, then there's some best practice cases. There's a lot of hotel companies actually using technology for water stewardship. So they have low flow systems. Um, I mean, all of us came across that probably in our recent hotel stays is a towel and linen reuse program that hotels offer their customers. So the customer can just decide if they want to have uh, the housekeeping on a daily basis or just every second day and if they want to reuse the linen. Um, and I think a very important technology and something where digital is really helpful is just the measurement technology. So that you have dashboards and you have KPIs and that you can really monitor performance, especially if you look at multi-property companies, maybe even like brands that have multi-country um, properties and brands across many countries with many brands, as you mentioned before, really, it gets really complex. So, for example, um, a franchise brand, they have to manage so many different stakeholders. For them, a solution to monitor the performance overall and individually and being able to break this down per department, per season, per maybe segment of guests, that's probably very helpful. And then the last one I'd, I'd like to mention, and it's probably, and list is not complete, don't take this as the full uh, perfect list, but there's also a huge potential in just changing the entire technology setup and um, tech stack of a hotel. So if you just look at the potential of cloud, right? So on a recent conference, Accor's chief technology architect, Kang Yang Tru, said that he suggests that um, if all hotels um, would move to the cloud, they could actually lower their carbon footprint by 80% by just moving their technology stack to the cloud. Again, that sounds very simple. It's not something you can do from today to tomorrow. It's also a process, but certainly there's a lot of value in looking into these examples. I, um, I like I like to pick up on the building just for a minute because I, I've been yeah, doing please. a lot of work on that field. I find it super interesting, the advances in building technology. I mean, uh, in, in, in building technology, but also in building construction and design. Um, we, we have examples of passive housing techniques that really enables hotel buildings to be extremely resource efficient and particularly energy efficient. Amazing thermal insulation, window glazing and heat recovery system. And, you know, th this is, I think, quite, quite uh, interesting because you can create a zero energy carbon neutral building from scratch. And I, I think in the next step, what we're going to see as well is probably sort of the entire building carbon life cycle from construction operation renovations and there too we see some advances in the type of construction material in the construction techniques uh in a transparency and in impact of furniture replacements for example through renovation cycles um i, I think also what's interesting is is this whole internet of things and and ai in fact um it's making a difference in some some sectors already you know, providing greater access to live data and transparency of measurements. Um, we, we know about the intelligent kitchen scales for food waste management, for example, or linking all these energy consuming devices within one property. 
But there's one thing that I wanted to bring up as well, which I think would be interesting is, and it's actually an interesting technology to turn to, especially in urban centers. And it's actually what nature actually provides. So not man-made tech, but nature-based tech, if you will. So bringing nature back in a city is in vogue, um, you know, providing green spaces, but it's, it's more than just providing green spaces. It's about carbon sequestration and air quality and absorbing pollutants, water management, et cetera, noise pollution. Um, so we talk about nature-based solutions, and they offer actually amazing opportunities of tackling both climate and biodiversity, because ultimately what we need to do is treat those two things, climate emergency and biodiversity loss, as two parts of really the same problem, where in fact both human-made tech and nature-based solutions actually have a key uh, in moving forward, really. Yeah, it's a super interesting field, I guess. And it's it's so, so great solutions you just mentioned there. Um, but I mean, another um, challenge I see there, though, with, in terms of the buildings, and that's something that we have to wrap our head around as an industry, not all hotel buildings are new buildings, right? So we have a lot of re, like old buildings that we re-innovate, like rebrand and that we just refurbish. So what do you think, Willie? I just want to add one question here. Do you think we need some external imposed regulatory factors there? for zero net like buildings as a requirement um so that you're not even allowed to build buildings that are not meeting these requirements what do you think yeah so i mean there's, there's no doubt that the beauty of regulations is that it creates a level playing field uh, for the industry and that's actually demanded by a lot of players to be honest but uh, you know in the eu we do have a building directive already for uh, nearly zero energy building at least for new buildings and a transition of current existing properties to a nearly zero energy building by 2050. So there are, there are some, uh, some requirements in place. There's no doubt that we're going to see more. There's no doubt that buildings, because it's so energy intensive and, um, is, is a cornerstone of, uh, the EU green deal. We're going to see more. We might see uh, an advanced carbon market for buildings in terms of, you know, the emissions that are linked to uh, building inefficiencies. Um, so whether we like it or not, in fact, uh, you know, advanced system of regulations will be put in place. And that's going to, that's part of the equation. It's not the only one. It's part of a very important equation to net zero, no doubt. Right, I see. And let's talk about something that I know any stakeholder industry is quite passionate to talk about is the economic aspect of everything, right? Because we're here to do business in the end. So, and that's where you get them usually at the table, you get their attention when you talk about the economic um, aspects. So when we look at the economic pillar, and um, which is an important part of the sustainability model, how would you say can the industry sustainably balance the ultimate responsibility for the planet um, with the profitability it has to serve? And how would you align benchmarks with aspirational ESG targets there? Yeah. So uh, earlier this year, I actually wrote a paper on the so-called marginal abatement cost curve. Short, it's short MAC, M-A-C-C. And I, want, I basically wanted to present a tool which would go beyond just your standard payback period or return on investment calculation, which is usually the tools that are widely used to give owners, operators of businesses uh, a view on their investment. But it's a really one-sided view. When you do a return on investment, it's a straight financial return. But in this day and age, as we've just talked now, 
we actually need to take in consideration the overall impact of that investment decision. So we need a better tool, in fact. We need a better tool to make informed decisions. And this is where enters the marginal abatement cost curve. This curve, just shortly, it was developed by consultant at McKinsey over a decade ago to actually guide governments in their decision for infrastructure development. But what's special about that calculation is the following. So pretend I have a, a, a hotel or a business and I have multiple investment options in front of me to achieve greater energy efficiency. But because of the current economic situation, I cannot undertake all investment now. So I have to make an informed decision. Now, knowing that there are increased demands and, and regulations toward net zero, what investment decisions should I make that will provide me with a an attractive return, but at the same time, bring me closer to net zero. And so, you know, pretend I run that property and I want, I have the choice. I can spend my money into motion sensors and LED lighting, or I can install photovoltaic panels. But remember, I cannot do both right away because I'm strapped with cash. This is where that Mac comes into the game because what it does, you actually take your investment, you discount the savings over the lifetime of this investment, in this case, energy savings. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a net present value for this investment. Many companies will stop at that. If you have a good net present value, you do it. For me, it's only the first part of the equation. The next part is simply to divide this by the overall carbon emissions you save from that investment. That gives you a euro per tons of CO2 equivalent, and that provides investors, owners, and executives a sound financial, but also environmental fact-based decision-making tool. And it's really about combining this. It's very simple, in fact. It's the financial payback with the carbon emissions you avoid. And, you know, looking at the current situation, that really enables these decision-makers to honor their commitment towards decarbonization by abating, by cutting the most carbon for the lowest cost. And that's basically what it is. As for ESG, just to keep it short, I think um, ESG is are super important. They guide the business uh, sustainability disclosure. What's important, I think, with environmental social governance is that it should not just be considered a good risk management tool, but a tool actually for need change. Um, and what I, you know, why it's important to have ESG, I think, for the bulk of hospitality and tourism industry, what's critical is actually to build on the methodology in setting baselines, setting targets, building a check mechanism about whatever you're doing. So if it's net zero by 2050, build that, you know, have that methodology. If, it, if it's about zero plastic next year, same thing, right? It's about having a baseline targets and check mechanism. Right, yeah, that sounds um, like a way to go. And there is an opportunity for us to hear even more about that. And I want to ask you about that because that's the reason we're here, actually. We're all looking forward to ITB Berlin 2022 and the convention. So finally, what's the role of the ITB convention with regards to sustainability in travel and hospitality? What would you say, Willie? So, right, I'm really excited. So ITB, as a leading think tank on the sustainability topic in travel and tourism, we have a dedicated sustainability track that's going to take place on Friday, March 11th, along with a whole series of side sessions. Now, we have moderated sessions, keynote speeches, hard debates planned. Uh, World-recognized scientists and researchers will provide latest on climate biodiversity and social cultural tourism impacts. And of course, Global, but also regional industry leaders and industry observers are taking the stage to explain how businesses will deal with risk, will deal with resilience, will deal with sustainability post-COVID, but also knowing that the clock is ticking 
uh, how do we deal with decarbonization with a heavy goal to be reached by 2030, eight years down the road? Uh, you can expect topics on travel mobility and sustainability, on regeneration and tourism, on best and worst practices. You know, how can destinations become carbon neutral? Uh, how does climate adaptation looks like? Um, you know, and what, what are the commitment? We've made the commitment, sorry, to cut emissions by half over the next decade net zero by 2050. How does that mean? What does that mean for us? And so, you know, to, that provides a preview, really. Um, and one thing is certain, certain it, it will be intense because the spotlight is on our industry. And it's not, you know, how best to not only clean up our act, but really act as a positive, hopeful, regenerative force for communities and natural habitats around the globe. Well, that sounds like well time, invested time well when you attend this format. And for everyone who's interested in that, just make sure to check out itb.com. You find all information on the ITB convention program there and just mark your calendar for the Friday. I will do for sure. And looking forward to the program. And thank you so much really for the insights. I mean, the time is just too short for all the topics we could discuss, but I appreciate you took the time. It was fun. I want to thank you as well, Leah, for this insightful talk. There's so much to learn from one another. Thank you also to the ITB team for that opportunity to talk today. And of course, I look forward to ITB 2022. Yes, let's see there the latest and uh, it's bye for now. Thank you. Thank you.